What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. That's where you get the ritual in Leviticus 16, the famous uh, Day of Atonement ritual, where the priest has to sort of lay his hands on the head of that scapegoat and uh, confess all of the sins of the Israelites over it and then banish that goat into the wilderness. Um, it's only the rabbis who say it has to get driven over a cliff. That's not actually in Leviticus. Love that addition. Um, but it's not actually in Leviticus. It just gets driven into the wilderness in Leviticus. Also, I've um, seen goats on cliffs. They're actually very sure-footed. I don't know I that know. that works. So. <laughs> I, you know, those are, they are quite uh, good climbers, I have to say. We need a David Attenborough special following the scapegoat <laughs> into, the, into the desert. <laughs> Hey, everybody. I'm Dan McClellan. And I'm Dan Beecher. And you are listening to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where we try to increase the public's access to the academic study of the Bible and religion and combat the spread of misinformation about the same. How are things today, Dan? Man, I'm excited. We're going we're gonna to increase some, uh, some, some public uh, whatever you access. just said. Access. Yep. <laughs> we're going to do that thing because we, we have we, we have, got work to do. We got double the scholars on today's show. So I think that's always a good thing. Speaking of which, uh, we have a guest today. This is Leanne Feldman, assistant professor of religion at Princeton University, newly minted assistant professor of religion there. How are things today, Leanne? Things are great. It's finally starting to feel like fall, so I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm not as excited. I have a I now my oldest daughter started high school a couple weeks ago, and so I'm having a whole new type of existential crisis. You're uh, an old but, man. <laughs> yeah, and it's also still in the 90s uh, in Utah. So yeah, yeah that doesn't help. <laughs> it, it does not. Uh, Leanne is the author of the recent The Consuming Fire, the complete priestly source from creation to the promised land, which is a wonderful, not incredibly thick book, very accessible translation of what scholars so lovingly refer to as P, the priestly source. Uh, and I thought this would be a wonderful opportunity to discuss a little bit about Pentateuchal composition, the theories that are out there, and the nature and function of the priestly source for our audience. And thus, we have Leanne here with us today. Um, just to start, I, I read through the, the preface and the translator's note and, and everything else, uh, but would you mind uh, telling our audience um, where the idea for this book came from and why you think why this is an important uh, book for the public to have? Sure. Um, so the idea for this book initially came from, honestly, a lot of my colleagues. Um, I realized as I was working on my first book, um, revising the dissertation, turning it into a book, that I had a good sense of what P was and what the scope of the story looked like and all of its ins and outs, um, but that a lot of my colleagues who aren't Pentateuchal specialists had no idea. Um, or they would know some basics, like, we all know Leviticus is part of P, but I would get these requests from colleagues of mine, like, could you send me, you know, the P story of the plagues? Or could you send me the P story of the flood? Or, you know, and so I was making these one-off, um, like, Word documents uh, using sort of NRSV or JPS translations, just putting it together and then adjusting where necessary for a lot of my colleagues who are asking for these things. And I realized pretty quickly, gosh, it would be really useful if I could just take this knowledge that's in my head that I've been working on for a decade that a lot of us specialists, and I say a lot of us, probably like 20 of us in the world <laughs> have in our head. But for me, that sounds like a lot. Um, and make it a little bit more accessible. So, um, and then the pandemic hit and the project that I was supposed <laughs> to be working on, I didn't have access to libraries. So I was like, you know what? I have everything I need to do this at home, mostly. And so it was an opportunity for me to take time during COVID and just dive into this project since I couldn't work on what I had planned to work on. 
So for those of us who aren't in the world of biblical scholarship, let's go back and start at the very beginning of this and talk about what is P? What are we actually referencing with that? Sure. So what we're referencing with that is there has been, you know, for the last, I don't know, 250 years or so, 200, 250, depending on where you want to date it. Um, this theory that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, are a composite text, meaning they are written, the materials in Genesis through Deuteronomy are written by a number of different authors that were sort of later combined together um, by one or more editors. That's a sticking point. I can get into it if you want, but we don't have to. Um, And so one of those sources, one of those distinctive strands has been identified pr- pretty early on as the priestly source. I actually hate that terminology. Um, <laughs> Do you have a sense of where, why it was called that? Um, it was called that, yeah. Um, so it was called that because of Leviticus, largely. Um, because Leviticus is part, is the only book in um, the Pentateuch, in my opinion, that belongs wholly to one source. And Leviticus is full of sacrificial instructions, um, rules around the ordination of the priesthood, laws around purity and impurity. So it has to do with things related to the cult and the priests who run that cult. Um, so that is largely, I think, where it got its name. Um, it wasn't its original name back, like back in the late 1900s, um, early, or sorry, late 1800s, early 1900s, Vell hasn't actually called it the Q source um, for its four covenants, um, which is one of the narrative themes that he saw in it, but that that didn't stick. And we <laughs> instead got the P source. And um, much as I don't love that terminology, it is, it is what stuck. And so I did keep it for this because that way people know what it is. If uh, if you were given the prerogative to rename it, uh, do you have something in mind that you would prefer? Yeah, that was that was the hard part. I actually don't know what I would rename it. Um, I mean, we obviously called it the Consuming Fire. That was more of a um, work of the editorial team at uh, the University of California Press than yeah. myself. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted something a little bit catchier, so they went with that, and I think it. It at least fits the source, so I'm okay with it. Um, I actually am not quite sure if there's a, a quick, easy name that I would name it. If I were taking uh, ancient naming conventions, I might just call it When God Began. Let's start with Bereshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, start with the first couple of words. That doesn't really capture what the story is about, though. Um, so how would, uh, let's say, one of the people anciently responsible for the collation of this source, let's say they got into an argument with somebody who was a, a proponent of D or something like that, what would they highlight as the most important parts of their source? What stands out as um, why it's important to have what we now refer to as P? Yeah, so I think one of the most important parts of this source, one of the things that comes through in P that doesn't necessarily come through quite so strongly in any of the other sources, D included, um, is the idea that the Israelite cult, the um, the sanctuary, the sacrifices made at that sanctuary are really the center of the life of Israelites. Um, and that it's not something that is distant from their day-to-day activities, but that it's wholly and completely bound up in how their community is organized, how their life is arranged, and that the Israelites are fundamentally necessary for the maintenance and ongoing um, sort of continuation of this cult. And that's that right there is why I don't like calling it the priestly source, because it makes it sound like it's about the priests. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I really think that um, the priests are a part of it, but they are a means to an end of the Israelites really supporting this enterprise. And by calling it the priestly source, you kind of erase some of the lay Israelite involvement in the enterprise. Okay, so every everybody is contributing to the successful execution of all these uh, cultic maneuvers and everything. And within P, do we see the concern for uh, how this activity contributes to cosmic order, to social order, to all those things, or is that coming from outside of uh, of P? Yeah, so I do think it's coming from um, within P to a degree. Um, So, and here I should say, I'm talking about P as if it's a unified whole. And I I sort of treat it as a unified whole in this book. And that's a specific sort of 
editorial decision on my part. P itself is multiple strata written over um, written over the course of a few hundred years by multiple different scribes. So not yeah. every stratum of P thinks exactly the same thing. Um, but I think what binds them together is that they all buy into fundamentally the same story mm-hmm. and largely the same worldview, even as they quibble about how that might be executed. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that caveat <laughs> in place. Um, yeah, so some of sort of the cosmic order that P is... Um, working with developing, um, advancing in this text, um, it's actually far more pronounced than in some of the other sources that we have. And here it's the idea that there's sort of a place for everything. um, And there's a particular sequence that everything sort of works or functions in. But what's interesting to me is it's not fixed. Mm-hmm. Right. So we, we see this at first in you know Genesis one with things being sort of put in order on each of the six days and then the seventh day being rest. Um, and God creates this world that is good. And almost immediately after the creation of that world, it's no longer good. Um, what God sets up in Genesis one is supposed to be sort of a well-oiled machine that runs on its own without much interference from him at all. And it falls apart and the wheels come off right away. And by Genesis 6, which comes pretty closely after Genesis 1, and um, we don't have any of the Cain and Abel or the Adam and Eve story in P. Um, so by Genesis 6, the world is full of violence. The order that God has set up between animals and humans not killing each other, that has fallen apart. There's bloodshed everywhere. And God realizes very quickly, this idea that I had about how things would work It's not going to work. I have to revise. And this is, I think, one of the really unique parts about P is it's a God that's constantly revising and reacting to what's going on on the ground. So it's not a sort of all-knowing God that knows what's going on from the beginning. It's a God that's reacting to sort of the unpredictability of their creation. Um, And so some of that is actually built into the fabric of how this works um, that's actually the impetus for why the cult exists in the first place is that because of that, um, P's God decides I'm going to have to live on the earth so I can keep a little bit of a closer eye on them. Oh, wow. Um, and the entirety of the sanctuary, the tabernacle, the sacrificial rules, the purity laws, all of that is actually enabling God to live on earth. Um, like that, that's the, how is this going to work? Um, so that's sort of bringing a kind of cosmic order of the, uh, separation between holiness and impurity, um, cause God is fundamentally imagined as this holy thing, right. um, the epitome of holiness, not so hard to understand why, <laughs> um, but holiness in P can't really coexist with impurity. It's kind of like oil and water. They, re- they sort of repel mm-hmm. and impurity is not a bad thing, but it's just, what human beings are. Just by the nature of living, they generate impurity. So in order for God to exist on earth, um, there has to be some sort of um, pure space. Now, this this pure space there, for a long time, the understanding of a lot of the ritual and cult that's going on in places like Leviticus, the idea was that this was cleansing the people but uh, my understanding is that since the 70s and later, and, and even before that, to some degree, the, the idea is now, no, this is cleansing the space from the people so that God's presence can dwell there, so that they are not driven out. And we see similar ideas where this sin that people are committing, it generates kind of a metaphysical contamination that pollutes the land. And so it's not so much something internal, interior to people or their spirits. It's the fact that we are generating contamination that is polluting the space or the land. And then either God cannot dwell there or the land cannot uh, tolerate the presence of the people there. Is that is that um, a, a fair assessment of where things stand these days on ritual theory? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this was like Baruch Levine, Jacob Milgram. These are the people in the 70s, 80s, and 90s who really advanced this. Um, Jacob Milgram's, you know, 3,000-page commentary, <laughs> um, which was my introduction to Leviticus as a first-year master's student. Oh, gosh, that's um, intimidating. I know. Like, if you survive that, then you're just, you must really like Leviticus. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Um, yeah, that that was really sort of one of the things that Jacob Milgram really advanced. And there's quibbles and disagreements around sort of the finer 
details of how this works. Um, but by and large, I do think, you know, Jacob Milgram was largely right, especially when it comes to sort of P proper Leviticus 1 through 16, give or take a few things here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets a little bit different when we get into the holiness code, which is one of those other strata of P that I was talking about, that that actually does have a little bit more of a focus on um, purifying the people themselves. And this is one of the things that it sort of extends. It, it's a sort of both and. It's like purify the space and purify the people in the mm-hmm. holiness code. Um, but sort of the fundamental base level of P, sort of the... Um, ritual materials really are largely focused on keeping the physical space pure and keeping the, uh, removing the things, the contaminants from impurity, the contaminants from sin. Um, this is where people often, um, conflate impurity and sin. Um, and this is where we get this idea that impurity is sinful. Um, the way that this system imagines it working, um, at least in P, it's again a little bit different in H. Um, but the way that the system in P imagines it working is both impurity and sin generate sort of this miasmic contaminant, which then magnetically kind of attaches itself to like holy things. So you think, you know, for me, if I'm wearing a white shirt, I will. S- always, always find some kind of dirt. It just somehow magnetically (laughs) attracts. It's kind of that same idea, um, but sort of on an invisible level. Um, This is why I don't wear white. Uh, (laughs) I can't do it. Um, But this is how, um, so we have this sort of contamination from impurity or from sin. So the mechanism is the same, but the um, implications are are different. So impurity is just natural. It's, It's an inevitable part. Um, of human life, sin is obviously not inevitable. It's not, in, and so the ways that these two things contaminate are a little bit different. But the fundamental premise is that they both contaminate, and so both things need to be um, purified from the sanctuary quite regularly um, in order to keep that sort of clean zone, that pure zone, so right. Yahweh can remain. I'm curious. Would you talk just a little bit about like what kind of ritualistic things they would do? to purify uh, these areas? Yeah, so I'm happy to talk about what they are as long as you don't ask me why this is how it works. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Absolutely no idea. Um, And I have yet to see a good explanation for it. Um, So largely the way that it seems to be imagined to work is that it's via the sacrifices. Um, So this is largely what sacrifice is for, especially the involuntary ones the what I translate as decontamination offering. And I hope at this point it's a little bit clear why I'm translating it as decontamination offering and not just purification offering. Um, So the decontamination offering and the asham, the guilt offering, um, these two are the ones that really do the work of cleaning. And it's these two types of sacrifices in particular where the um, priests, Well, the regular Israelite slaughters the animal, but the priest manipulates the blood Um, and the blood of the animal gets smeared on very specific places, depending on who's offering the animal and what subtype of decontamination offering it is. So often it's on the horns of the altar um, and there's two altars. So which horns and which altar depends on how severe the contamination is. But the idea is that by putting the blood on the horns of whichever altar is necessary, that is actually part of the decontamination process. This blood becomes a kind of ritual detergent that um, removes the impurity um, and removes sort of, I would say, the low to moderate level impurities. The really, really severe stuff, um, sort of the worst of the impurities, that's where you get the ritual in Leviticus 16, the famous uh, Day of Atonement ritual, where the priest has to sort of lay his hands on the head of that scapegoat and uh, confess all of the sins of the Israelites over it and then banish that goat into the wilderness. Um, it's only the rabbis who say it has to get driven over a cliff. That's not actually in Leviticus. <laughs> Love that addition. Um, but it's not actually in Leviticus. It just gets driven into the wilderness in Leviticus. Also, I've um, seen goats on cliffs. They're actually very sure-footed. I don't know, I know. that that would work. So. <laughs> I, you know, those are, they are quite uh, good climbers, I have to say. We need a David Attenborough special following the scapegoat <laughs> into, the, into the desert. <laughs> um, so I, I have a question. We've... 
we've kind of talked a bit about P, but I'd like to situate this in within the broader scholarship regarding Pentateuchal composition, just so people can uh, can gain a little bit better purchase on the relationship of this to to other texts. And you've you've talked a bit about how. P begins in, in Genesis 1, goes a tiny bit into Genesis 2, and then we pick up some genealogical stuff in Genesis 5. We skip over the B'nai Elohim in, in the beginning of Genesis 6, and we go right into the story of Noah. So those other stories come from somewhere. So could you talk a little bit about the other uh, sources that are hypothesized to have been brought together into the Pentateuch, and uh, and then we'll get into the controversies about neo-documentarianism and, and some of the I was other stuff. Which <laughs> <laughs> do you want me to take care? And I promise um, you, listeners at home, I'm going to try to make sure that we all understand <laughs> this, everything that's, that's the, because uh, these two can, can clearly get into weeds that I will never be able to <laughs> climb into. So yeah, well, we'll get there. I love it. This all is right. great practice. I'm doing this with my students in like two weeks. So this is oh, awesome. keep me out of the weeds. Glad we can. Um, <laughs> so yeah. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I, I was going to say there's a couple different ways to go about this, right? The most basic thing to say is that the Pentateuch is made up of three main blocks of material. And I think pretty much whatever methodology you come at this from, um, a supplementarian methodology or a neo-documentarian methodology, we all fundamentally agree about this. There's the priestly material. There's the Deuteronomic material, which is mostly everything in Deuteronomy, but not every single word. That's what um, we're calling D? What we're calling D, yeah. Okay. Um, I don't think supplementarians would necessarily call it D, but they would identify the same block of material as yeah. largely. Um, and then what I often diplomatically just call the non-priestly material. That is everything that's not P and not D. Okay. Um, and the easiest way I can put this is that almost all of the ink that's been spilled over Pentateuchal composition is about that material, the non-priestly material. That's where our greatest disagreements lie. Not to say we don't have quibbles over bits and pieces of P and D. We do. Um, But most of the disagreement is around the non-priestly materials. So from a neo-documentarian perspective, which is the uh, methodology into which I was trained, um, and I will caveat this with saying, I spent all of my graduate years training as a neo-documentarian. I do think it's the best explanation for the evidence that we have, but I also am very much not an expert on the J&E, and I have only ever used neo-documentarianism insofar as it came to identifying P. Can we just um, can we take just a second to to describe what neo-documentarianism as opposed to the other <laughs> thing that you said? Yeah. Sure. So neo-documentarianism is a, let's say, revision, updating, uh, rehabilitation, perhaps, of the idea introduced by Wellhausen, most famously by Wellhausen in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, that there are fundamentally four sources that make up the Pentateuch. Uh, what he named the Yahwist source, um, for us, J, German has no Y, so <laughs> German is spelled with a J, so that's why we call it the J source. Um, the Eloist source, E, uh, the priestly source, P, and the Deuteronomist, uh, Deuteronomist source. Wow, I, that one is a twister. <laughs> um, or D. So the idea that there's these four. And, and these and these four sources, it's called the documentary hypothesis because the idea is that they were four independent documents exactly. that were circulating on their own and then were brought together. Exactly. So that these were four 
somewhat parallel, but still rather different stories that were written by at least four different people slash groups of people that at some point, most scholars would say in the Persian period were joined together. Um, And now it might have happened once, it might have happened a few times. I'll stay out of the weeds on that. Um, (laughs) But that's sort of the Wellhausen approach. And one of the ways that he initially sort of differentiated between these sources and most famously was by the use of the divine name. If it says Yahweh, it's the J source. If it says Elohim, it's the E source. Um, And this is one of the ways that sort of it started to get divided up in Genesis. And um, I mean lexical considerations of other types of words also became important later on, but sort of the most famous recognizable one is J says Yahweh and E says Elohim. Um, That's strictly not, it works like 80% of the time. (laughs) Uh, The problem is P also says Elohim for all of Genesis Mm. Um, because it's a plot point in the story in Exodus six that God introduces himself to Moses as Yahweh and says, you know, your ancestors knew me as X, um, El Shaddai in that case, um, Elohim and El Shaddai, but actually my name is Yahweh. Um, so it's it's not a foolproof um, situation. And this is one of the, uh, uh, I know folks who, who prefer mosaic authorship, not many scholars, but uh, in the, uh, the broader public, a lot of folks believe that the documentary hypothesis is built entirely on this foundation that, oh, if it says Adonai or if it says Elohim, then that's a different source. And and that makes for a rather brittle foundation. And so it's a way to kind of dismiss the whole thing. But that's really not the strongest evidence that we have for these literary layers. And so, yeah, this this is largely the evidence that was leaned on most heavily in the early 20th century. And that Europe, like most mostly continental European scholarship, I don't want to differentiate it completely geographically because there are some American scholars who also take this approach, but largely, um, but that continental European scholarship, especially German um, language scholarship in the mid 20th century, really rightly critiqued and like tore apart and said, this doesn't work. And they're right. It doesn't. Um, so in the late 20th century, 1970s, 80s, and really 90s, um, a movement at Hebrew University, um, Baruch Schwartz was one of sort of the spearheaders of this, sort of revitalized the documentary hypothesis. And this is what we call the neo-documentary hypothesis. Um, you know, very obvious naming reasons there. <laughs> um, but there, there's a much greater focus on sort of concepts of um, what makes a narrative and how do we understand narrative continuity, um, narrative coherence? What are the things that uh, we can point to that show the breakdown of a story? So from a methodological standpoint, neo-documentarians will start with the final form of the Pentateuch. Uh, we'll take you know all five books and I'll just start reading. And I'm making it sound easy. It's really not. Um, (laughs) So just to be clear. None of this sounds easy, I promise. (laughs) Great. Um, Well, I start reading. And then when I get to a point where, you know, something that's already happened once happens again without explanation. So the most obvious one is the world is created in Genesis 1 and then it's created again in Genesis 2. What? There's there's no sort of reconciling of that. Um, Or when I get to sort of irreconcilable facts, the flood lasts 40 days or it lasts 150 days. The bird is a dove. The bird is a raven. Um, These are the kind of two, you know, some of the flagship, like uh, main, main things that we point to. But there's all sorts of smaller contradictions like that. A character all of a sudden seems to forget something that they had just said or just done and proceeds in a completely different direction. The characterization of a particular character is completely wildly different. Um, These are the kind of things that we sort of flag and we start to delineate sources on the basis of what we call narrative inconsistencies or um, narrative contradictions. So, you know, um, another famous one is Moses in Exodus. Moses goes up the mountain twice in a row without coming down. Mm. 
How's that work? <laughs> um, so we sort of look at that. And when you start looking at these, when you start tracking these, you can sort of break them apart and see different strands. That's the really basic way of putting it. And what neo-documentarians argue is that when you break apart these strands without adding any words, without subtracting any words, without changing the order of any words, with a few exceptions, I literally just published an essay with changing a couple orders, <laughs> um, but without you know, changing the order of most words, um, you have very continuous, um, coherent, consistent stories. Um, and that's what makes it so compelling to me is that you can get these four continuous stories that really make sense. And they actually tell fundamentally different stories. And they're internally consistent in terms of their characterization, in terms of their worldviews, in terms of the particular arguments that they're making. So when I'm talking about J, E, P, and D, I'm talking about four independent stories. So are we uh, – sorry. I, this just clicked for me. Are, when you talk about these different sources, do we have – ancient source materials or are these reconstructions based on pulling what we currently have apart these are complete reconstructions this okay okay i had not understood that i'm yeah. i'm kind of del- dumb so that, <laughs> that's really interesting to me yeah so most I, people and most people don't realize that this is this is all hypothesis same on the supplementarian yeah. thing, which i'm happy yeah. to explain also I, I think a really fun example um, is, well, for me, fun for most people, just mind-numbingly dull. But um, <laughs> a, a fun example is uh, the story of Joseph being sold into slavery, because we seem to have, again, these narrative incongruities. And uh, is it the Midianites? Is it, is it the Ishmaelites? And there, and there are all kinds of apologetic attempts to kind of gin up background details that aren't in the story to make it all fit. But you can tease these things apart based on these incongruities, and you come up with two somewhat parallel stories, their own beginnings, their own middles, and their own ends. And they tell the story in in a different way. And that's one example where it doesn't seem like anything was lost. It seems like someone literally just took two stories and just kind of wove them together, uh, which which I think is is very strong evidence that... At least in that case, we have very two clear different sources for this story. When we think about the Pentateuch as five separate books, you point out in the introduction that this division into five books was probably a product of technological limitations where they could not preserve the entire thing on a single scroll. And so it might not have been that all these sources came together to produce Genesis and then came together to produce Exodus but that there was a single corpus that was being brought together. And then at some point along the line, they were divided up into these kind of macro narratives with all the different uh, patriarchal cycles of Genesis and then getting into the story of the Exodus. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that might surprise an awful lot of people. Yeah. Um, so I find this surprises my students um, all the time, is that the idea of these books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, no scribe set out to write Genesis. Um, no scribe even set out to write Leviticus. And I can get into some arguments with, um, especially I'm thinking here, if Christoph Nihon might disagree with me here. <laughs> um, but I think no scribe set out to write Leviticus. Um Instead, what we have is, um, so when these stories were put together, at least from a neo-documentarian perspective, it's really on the basis of chronology within the world of the story. So, you know, Moses goes up the mountain and the next thing that happens is he's on the mountain. The next thing that happens is that he comes down. So when you have different parts of the story or with, you know, the Genesis 37 example, Joseph being sold, um, you know, you have to when you have two stories that you have, and I often do this exercise with my students, right? I often say you have these two stories, put them together, turn them into one story without getting rid of anything. How would you do it? And very often they do actually use chronology. I don't tell them, um, I don't give them any hints about how it might've been done, but the thing that makes the most sense is to follow the chronology of the story. Um, And so when we do that, um, these texts obviously become much longer. Mm -hmm. And so This idea that technology is the limiting factor, I get from a series of articles that Menachem Haran wrote in the 70s and 80s. I think there's like 10 or 11 articles or something like that that he wrote in uh, various venues uh, for about a decade um, that he talks about and analyzes 
given what we know about the scrolls at Qumran, how long could a scroll have been? Um, how long could a like a physical scroll? How much text could it like actually support? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he looks at some of the longest scrolls we have, and he finds that it could support about the length of one of the Pentateuchal books, and that give or take, most of the Pentateuchal books are about the same length. Um, and that we have, um, I mean, I guess I should say, I should correct that and say a little bit more, like it's just a little bit more than what the Pentateuchal books can hold. Cause we actually do have scrolls from Qumran that are Genesis, Exodus or Exodus, Leviticus that hmm. contain parts of both books that sort of go over, not mm-hmm. the entirety of both, but at least, um, parts of both books. Uh, but what. Haran really importantly argued is that these divisions between the books are not arbitrary. It's not the scribe wrote until he got to the end of the scroll and said, I'm going to stop here. Um, guess I need a new page, you know, or guess, I guess I need a new notebook to fill this in in sort of modern terminology. Um, though nobody used notebook, notebook anymore. So <laughs> it's not so modern. Um, but they're also thematic. So you pick a point in the story where it makes sense. Um, that's about the length of uh, material that would have fit on a scroll, but makes sense. So mm-hmm. what we get is, you know, creation to the Israelites in Egypt. That makes sense. The departure from Egypt, the story that starts in Exodus 1, um, until they get to the setting up of the tabernacle, um, what I call the dwelling place in the translation um, at the end of Exodus, that makes sense as a unit. We have sort of the cultic rules and the purity laws that makes sense as a unit. The wilderness wanderings make sense as a unit. Um, so it's sort of grouping sort of almost five acts of a play. If you want to use mm-hmm. drama language, figuring out where those um, most logically break. And in some cases, you know, it makes perfect sense. In some cases I would quibble a little bit and you can see, you know, I put my divisions in this translation often across uh, book lines, you know, my okay. chapters don't quite line up with the chapter or the chapter or book divisions that we currently have. Um, but yeah, these decisions were, often made based on technological limitations and based on sort of thematic arcs, so to speak. So uh, you mentioned at Qumran uh, some texts where you go over the the book and, and include a little bit of, of Exodus. Um, I, I don't recall uh, having seen in the manuscripts, but are, is there a very clear break in the transcription where we get to our book divisions? So my the main question is, do we already have our standardized book divisions when these scrolls are being um, transcribed or is it something that's that's in flux even in that time period? I love this question so much um, because the assumption is that, yes, we, we have standard book divisions, but I actually think um, one of the entirely different project I'm working on that I'm not going to get into because it's still incredibly hypothetical at the moment and I may be very, very wrong. Um, (laughs) But part of it was looking at sort of the extent of these scrolls. Mm -hmm. And as best as I can tell, there is one fragment, um, because the thing to remember about these Pentateuchal texts is that they are so incredibly fragmentary. There are very, very few pieces that contain more than at most two lines three lines. There's, there's a section of Leviticus that's longer that I got to see in person this summer that was incredible. Um, but for most of these texts, we're talking tiny, tiny fragments with a few words on them, a couple yeah. of letters. Um, so we don't actually have a continuous text. So when I'm talking right. about these scrolls that are Genesis Exodus or Exodus Leviticus or Leviticus Numbers, these are scrolls that the original editors determined were in the same hand, on largely material that looks like it's from the same parchment. Um, so they're calling them the same scrolls, you know, probably found in the same area. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can determine, they determined that these are from the same scrolls. Uh, there's actually DNA testing being done on yep. some of these scrolls right now, which is super interesting to figure out, are they actually from the same parchment? Can we um, corroborate some of this? Wow. But all that to say, um, as far as I can tell, there's exactly one fragment that has the last letter of the book of Genesis and perhaps the first letter or two of the book of Exodus on it. And there's a gap. <laughs> oh, um, okay. There's not, it's not like a line gap. It's just like a, a gap in the line. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is also a sort of 
change in this, you know, it's a change in scene in the story. Yeah, yeah. We have, we have um, fragments very clearly that have, you know, chapter breaks that, or logical breaks that also have gaps like that. So right, right. I don't know. Um, <laughs> like the, the question is, it, it may have been preserved, but the fact that we have um, what scholars tell us is Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, and that it, those don't line up. They're not all the same, right? They okay. don't line up at the same start in Genesis and the same ending in Exodus. Some of that may just be because we don't have those fragments. Right. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to read too much into it. But to me, it seems like it may not have been quite as stable as we think it is. Okay. Um, but so, so it could still be an open question if yeah. the, the divisions of the books had become standardized by that point. Yeah, we know that they're pretty standard, but it's like later, a few centuries into yeah. the Common Era. That's when we have really good evidence that they've yeah. standardized. So um, speaking of dating, I know a question that I have and that, and I imagine a lot of people are going to have, is you've mentioned that there were several literary layers that the coming together of P is something that took uh, a long time. When do you date the the first attempt to uh, collate what we would call the first layer of P? Um, so the what I think the oldest layer of P is? Yeah. I think... Um, it's funny, the more I work on this text, the later the date starts to get. <laughs> um, but I I do think I would still hold to a late 7th, like 7th to 6th century context. I do think we have some material here. Um, and it's mostly me looking at the architecture described mm -hmm. in the tabernacle and really seeing um, Neo-Assyrian style temple blueprints. Okay. Um, and that, that a lot of the temple um, sites that we see in places like Tel Dan, Tel Tainat, um, Ain Dara, they, they all share this kind of, um, Tel Arad as well, they all share this kind of tripartite three-room um, three sanctuary plan, which is a very sort of neo-Assyrian plan that we see from roughly the 10th to the 7th, 6th century, that that's sort of its heyday. So. Mm -hmm. Part of it is I'm still kind of clinging to that a little bit and saying, this is what's being reflected here. Um, maybe, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> like, you know, I, I hold it very lightly, but I do okay. think that some of what we see here may be sort of seventh, sixth century, but probably not the majority of it. Okay. Now, once we get into the sixth century, now we're talking about the Babylonian exile. We're talking about a period when there was no temple. Um, are you of the opinion that a lot of this is is really folks who are outside of Israel kind of fantasizing, kind trying to put together and, and organize in their heads how they want this all to work, even in the absence of the cult? Or is this mostly coming after they come back and are reestablishing the cult? Yeah, so this is, this is a hard question for me to answer because, so here I really love Benjamin Summers' piece on um, pseudo-historicism and the perils of dating the Pentateuch. I'm messing up that title, but it has all those pieces in it. In <laughs> yeah. um, um, and he makes a really compelling argument in that article that we could just as easily um, place something like, I don't know if he uses P specifically, but we could just as easily place something like the construction of this elaborate narrative about a sanctuary um, in the exile with somebody longing for a return, trying to, you know, like Ezekiel, trying to imagine um, what will be when uh, the time comes. We can also very easily place it at the return as a program for, um, the rebuilding as a program for sort of the ideal in the early Persian period about what it should be, or we could put it pre-exilic and say, this is how it was. And they're reflecting. Um, so what for me, when it could equally make sense in any of those contexts, I don't want to guess which context it's in because mm -hmm. it doesn't feel like there is solid ground to do so. Um, and then it just becomes guesswork on my part. And I think it's one of the things I say in the dating section in, cause I, you know, much as I often resist dating, I did write a section in the introduction on the dating. Um, but at the end of that section, I said, one of the things that's very distinctive about P is that it fundamentally, in the way it tells its story, resists being dated in a way that kind of makes the story um, 
present itself as timeless, present itself as trying to defy um, geopolitical movements <laughs> um, and changes in um, particular situations. So I want to respect the fact that it's actually not giving us any good hooks. Um, there are a few like in terms of economics and architecture, like we can get a few hooks that at least there's things in the real world that are being reflected. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of dating the whole, dating why somebody might have written this, um, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> and I wish I did. I wish I could go back to that period and ask or watch somebody write this so I could figure out what it was. Um, but I think that that's one of the things that's both frustrating and beautiful about this text is that it really does actively resist that. And and I think that that's ambiguity, the fact that it can work in so many different settings, I think is one of the reasons that Genesis 1, at least, does seem to transcend uh, that and seem to, to function as something that a lot of people understand as just this very poetic kind of absolute beginning that is not easily reducible to a given uh, ideology or, or um, historical period. Um, which which brings me to another question I wanted to ask about uh, translation, because you talk a little bit about translation philosophy in here. And uh, there, there are two parts that I wanted to get your thoughts on. One, I appreciated very much the way you talked about the fact that a lot of the uh, kind of lexicalized terms that we use in contemporary translations are are really just kind of incidental um, lexicalization of overly literal renderings from the King James Version and, and elsewhere. Uh, and could you talk a little bit about why you think it is it is more helpful to kind of break that habit, uh, how it can render things both more foreign and more familiar to not use the terms that have become traditional? Yeah. So one of the big ones for me in this translation was tabernacle. And I've used it, I don't know how many times in this interview, because it's a really <laughs> hard habit to break. And when it comes to speaking with other scholars, I just default to tabernacle because that's that's what they know. And that's yeah, um, yeah. how I can communicate effectively. But I categorically refuse to translate Mishkan as tabernacle in this translation. Um, now, I never learned Latin. So forgive me all those who are listening who do know Latin. But um, my understanding of the research I did is that tabernacle is a pretty literal translation of Mishkan in the Latin, meaning like hut, house, um, and that's fantastic because that means that when we had it translated, you know, via the Vulgate and into the King James, Tabernacle really was um, capturing the idea that this sanctuary, this Mishkan, is a physical home for the deity to dwell in. Um, but my issue with using that is that it's become, it's become a pretty static term in modern American English. And my aim was to translate this into modern American English. That was um, what I was going for. Um, and we hear tabernacle and we think, you know, either the Mormon choir, um, <laughs> you know, there's that, um, we think, you know, there's churches with the name tabernacle in the name, or we think some weird structure that I'm not quite sure what it is. It seems kind of, it, it's some particular ritual thing. And I don't know what that is. <laughs> um, that's often what I get from students. Oh, that ritual thing. Um, when I say tabernacle. And that actually takes the structure that is quite literally, in my opinion, the beating heart of the peace source um, and makes it completely um, sterile. It makes it something so other that we actually forget. And the word tabernacle enables the reader to forget what it is yeah. um, because it's not something that we're familiar with. And Mishkan quite literally in Hebrew means the place of dwelling. Um, uh, the verb there means to dwell or to live and the, the mem on the beginning of it is sort of a type of noun that indicates a place where something happens. So it quite literally means dwelling place. And that really is one of the fund- fundamental points of this story. Um, the reason this exists, the reason we have all of these complicated, you know, to our perspective, complicated instructions is so that the deity can dwell among the Israelites on earth. Um, And that is fundamentally what this Mishkan structure is for. And so I wanted readers to be confronted with that over and over again um, as dwelling place, dwelling place, dwelling place, so that you can't forget 
the central role of this. You can't think of it as something sterile or other, but that it actually becomes hopefully that, um, you know, that home, that breathing entity that it actually is in the text. Yeah. That, and, and I think that's such an important part of, of translating a text with which so many people are familiar is defamiliarizing things so that it we take notice of it and then actually dedicate some cognitive effort to figuring out what is what is this referring to? Because, yeah, we'll just glide right past the word tabernacle without thinking about it at all. Yeah. Um, and another, uh, the very beginning of Genesis 1 in your translation was something I commented on on Twitter, something I talk about about a, about every three or four weeks. I have to bring it up on, <laughs> on my social media. Uh, and it was what we talked about the very first episode of the Data Over Dogma podcast. Can you tell me why you rendered uh, for Genesis 1-1 when God began to create? Um, oh yeah, I thought you were going with Tohu Vavohu there. Um, <laughs> so sorry, I was like, I was going. In well, I, no, that's part of uh, that's right there in the next clause. Yeah. I'd I'd love to hear about that as well. Yeah. Um, but but I think the all of it together would be wonderful. Yeah. Oh, I, I've seen you talk about this on various social media things. So I, I mean, I feel like I'm just going to be repeating your words here because what you're saying about them is well out, out of the mouths of two witnesses. So. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, basically, you know, we can translate, I think historically it's been translated in the beginning, um, but really Bereshit is a construct phrase, which in Hebrew means it is bound, it is tied to the word that comes next. Um, so that, that's often a relationship X of Y. Um, so here, because it's verbal, we have um, when God began, Bereshit bara is when God began. It's just that's the particular um, syntactical formation that this is. And so it becomes kind of the introductory clause to a more complicated sentence that then goes on to describe the conditions. Um, so when God to be, sorry, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, what what did it look like? And then so in verses two and three, we have sort of a longer description of what that looked like. What was the material with which God was working? What did it look like at that point of beginning? And it looked tohu vavohu, which you <laughs> render, and and I think um, to some degree, following a little bit after Alter's attempt to try to maintain some of the alliteration, how did you uh, go about verse two? Yeah, so I... Um... You know, for as much as I quibble with bits and pieces of Alter's translation style, and I've taught translation seminars with grad students, and we go at it in those seminars, <laughs> um, that he he was on to something. And I think um, Fox did this also, although I don't have that. Um, that's in my office at Princeton, so I don't have that one to look at. But um, at least with Alter, he translated as Welter and Waste, um, which I think Tohu Vavohu is... You know, a term, it's a, it's two words in Hebrew, well, three, but two in Hebrew that <laughs> are sort of alliterative, rhyming. They have a particular cadence to them. They're also kind of nonsense words. Um, mm -hmm. They don't have a real specific meaning to them. Um, in fact, I recently learned that they've come into other languages as meaning, like, and I think there's like, um, in German, they, it's come into German as a static phrase, which is oh, really? fascinating to me. Um, a friend of mine did a thread somewhere on this. I probably should have looked that up. I don't remember so that, exactly. There's the there's a new edition of the Einheitsübersetzung from a couple of years ago that uh, likes to transliterate where they think that the style is more important than the substance. So like Isaiah, Kav Lakav, Kav Lakav, Tzav Lakav, Tzav Lakav, they just transliterate. So that that could be where um, where we see that, but that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so it, it becomes this kind of word that it's this phrase that's very, very difficult to translate. And I appreciated um, Alter there trying to keep some of the alliteration because one of the things that you said just a little while ago um, was that Genesis 1 is very... Um, poetic sounding. It has that sort of high language. I'm not going to call it poetry. I'm not on the, the bandwagon that calls it poetry, but it's, it has a poetic nature to it. And Tohu Vavohu is that. Um, I did sort of take issue with Alter's Welter and Waste because that's, it's not communicating. It, it kind of communicates a wasteland. It communicate like when I hear Welter and Waste, I think kind of 
dry, arid wasteland kind mm. of like the similar to often you'll see Tohu Fafuhu translated as uh, formless and void. Um, and so that's what I was really trying to get away from because in there's this misconception that in Genesis, um, in Genesis one, it is creation out of nothing right. that God started <laughs> with nothing and just created all the parts of the world. And that's genuinely not what this text is saying. Um, what this text is describing, if we go on, is a world that is really sort of watery. Um, the land emerges out of the water. So God kind of gathers the waters and the land comes up. Everything's, all of the stuff and substance of creation is already there under these waters. And it's the act of separating them, of moving them, of pooling them um, that enables creation. So I really wanted to get at the swampiness um because if i think about like all sorts of stuff hidden in water like i think kind of like murky swampy and mm -hmm. so i landed on murk first because i'm like it's kind of messy and like what else has kind of got that watery slightly messy sense and so i went with meyer and I, so i went with meyer and murk to try to get that um because those words for me evoked a little bit of a wateriness of a sort of swampy nature so and I go on to really harp on the fact in the translation, really try to um, draw out the fact that this isn't creation out of nothing. But I was right. hoping that by at least picking Meyer and Merck, I could push back a little bit against the formless and void, the wasteland, the nothingness idea. Now, now this account of creation has pretty close ties with other ancient Southwest Asian and even Egyptian concepts of kind of land emerging from the chaotic waters of, of creation. Are you a proponent of the idea that Genesis 1 is kind of a domestication of something along the lines of the Enuma Elisha's uh, Kampf, or, or do you think that we're further removed from that, that it's not uh, an adaptation of that uh, earlier myth? Yeah, so I think, I think there are parts of P that are very much sort of an adaptation of Mesopotamian myths. I don't really see the connection with Genesis 1 and Enuma Elish particularly strongly. I think in broad conceptual terms, it's there. Um, I guess if you want to compare the phrase Enuma Elish to Bereshit Bara, maybe, but even then it's a little, it's, it's not quite. Um, so, you know, for me, the idea that there is a separation of waters and creation comes out of waters is very, very broad. Um, and very general. And I'm not necessarily a proponent of Genesis 1 is taking us directly from Enuma Elish so much as the idea of creation out of a watery mess is something that is, you know, in the lore yeah. of the area. Um, kind of drawn from a shared matrix without necessarily being directly. Exactly. I would, I would talk differently about the flood story in Atrahasis, mm -hmm. um, but I, at least in terms of Enuma Elish, not so much. Okay. So um, somewhat similar to David Sumora's take in, in uh, Creation and Chaos. Yeah. Um, okay. Very cool. Well, um, and, and that actually ties into... Uh, I think that uh, we have, well, obviously we have our one creation account in Genesis 1. We have a, another creation account in Genesis 2 and 3, which is the work of uh, another source. And then uh, we also, I and many scholars, other scholars have argued, have at least one more creation account, or at least vestiges of one more creation account in the uh, scattered around Isaiah and Psalms and Job and elsewhere. And I'm going to be teaching an online class on that on September 20th. So anyone interested in hearing my own take on what's going on across these, these three different um, creation accounts uh, is welcome to uh, check out the, um, we'll put a link in the, in the description to Didascaloid.com. Nice. Solid plug, Dan. But Solid I gotta, plug. I've uh, we were at a podcasting conference, <laughs> and um, every time someone came up to who recognized me came up to say hi, Dan would lean in and say, "Did you know he has a podcast?" And they would all say, "No, I didn't." And so <laughs> I'm uh, I'm trying to become a better uh, business person, at least uh, a, trying to a cross promoter, uh, a cross promoter. Yeah, is go. that the that the the jargon? So I'm sorry <laughs> to step all over your uh, your interview with that. 
a uh, bit of self-promotion, Leanne, but... Um, but I'm very uh, glad to have been able to tee that up for you. That's right. <laughs> but Leanne, before uh, before we uh, we sign out, I want you to plug whatever you have to plug. Talk to us about your book. Tell us where we can get it. Talk to us about anything else you want us to uh, to know about in your work. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, this book is published by the University of California Press. Um, there... Um, Say the title of it one more time. Oh, sure. The... The Consuming Fire, The Complete Priestly Source from Creation to the Promised Land. A bit of an audacious title. I'm, um, you'll see I qualify that in the introduction um, from the neo-documentarian perspective anyway. Um, but yeah, so this is it's available from the University of California Press. It was incredibly important to me that it was affordable. Um, so I think the book before any applicable discounts is like $19 or something like that. $19.95 is the retail price. There we go. And I have a discount code that I can email um, if you want to include it with this that I think gets either 30 or 40% off, brings it down to around $13. Yeah, there you wow. go. Um, so there's that. Um, the only other thing I will plug is that I am in the very final stages of finishing the next edition of this, um, which should be coming out sometime in probably later 2024, which is everything that's in here, but also the Hebrew text. But don't let oh, that stop cool. you from buying the current version. And then, then you got to go and buy the next version after. <laughs> what I will say is the Hebrew version, the version that has the, so just to be clear, I'm not translating the introduction or the notes into modern Hebrew. This is including the <laughs> biblical Hebrew text that right. I translated. Um, and in large part, this is not something that the University of California Press usually does because this is a world literature and translation series. But because this is a text that is hypothetically reconstructed, um, obviously using scholarly methods, but I think sentence one is why am I not just making things up? Um, <laughs> when I sort of talk about the method. Um that this isn't a text that's available in Hebrew. So, you know, nobody can really question my translation or quibble with choices I've made because you don't have access to the text that I translated because you don't know which words I kept in and out. And so <laughs> it was very important to me to have that transparency to say, look, I have this text that I translated. Um, I want to make it available to scholars, to students who know Hebrew, to those in the broader community who can read biblical Hebrew so that they can see too, so they can, um, you know, argue with me about the translation, argue with me about choices. This was not meant to be the definitive statement. On, so when I say it's an audacious title to say the complete priestly source, um, I wanted this to start a conversation. I wanted to make the knowledge that was in my and maybe 19 other people's heads accessible to everyone else. And I hope people just agree with me. I hope people argue. Um, I hope this is the start of a broader conversation about what this source can be. Um, I absolutely love this text. I fell in love with it in 2009, and I'm still not done with it. Um, so, you know, I just want other people to see what I love about it and to have a chance to tell me that I'm wrong about it. Um, so <laughs> the Hebrew will be coming out sometime in 2024, once I manage to catch all the errors in the proofs with the help yeah. of a wonderful copy editor. So this okay. is really an opening volley in what will hopefully turn into a, a longer discussion. And I and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Seth Sanders is also using your text for a digital online version of the priestly source that will be do you I, are I, well, I know he had, like I know Seth has a digital open access online priestly source. I didn't realize he was using my text. That's amazing if he is. I don't I, well, uh, I don't want to get him in any kind of copyright no, trouble. No. Um because I mean, I, I'm very, if he chooses to do that, I'm very honored by it. Um I don't know I don't want to be misrepresenting Seth either. He is in some way, shape, or form referring to your your text uh, in uh, an outline of of the priestly source for his uh, open access digital version that is also annotated. Um, yeah, and I so just at least right now, his is English only. I think. Yes. I don't know yes, yes. I don't know if he has plans to put the Hebrew up, but yeah, he put that out. That was out. It's been out for about a year, I think. Um, and it's a great resource um, yeah. for anyone who doesn't want to buy the book, who wants to compare. Because think, I think some of his uh, source divisions are a little bit different than mine. So this okay. is what I mean about having about arguing about having discussions <laughs> so so it it might be it was uh he was originally basing his off of of yours but but yeah. fiddling or, with it here and there or uh, he had when i looked at it a year ago he had based it off something else then my book came out maybe he changed something maybe he didn't maybe i don't he know did. i haven't yeah. looked at it since. okay well you should still 
go ahead and this is a very affordable book and um and the introduction and the uh the translator's note is worth the price of admission just because i think there are important principles in there that a lot of folks who are not uh among the 19 other people in the world who really have a, a firm grasp on these data uh, i think that can help a, a lot of folks orient themselves to understanding what's going on with uh, Pentateuchal criticism, at least as it pertains to the priestly source, P, perhaps the most important uh, source uh, in the in the Pentateuch. And I'm um, I'm trying not to alliterate so much with the P sounds. But. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much, Liam, for your time. We really appreciate it. Appreciate your expertise, and uh, really appreciate you publishing this book uh, that I think will be very helpful. Uh, Dan, did you have something to add? Just that uh, anyone who need, who uh, would like to write into us can do so uh, by writing into contact at dataoverdogmapod.com. Uh, if you would like to support this show and uh, and all of its goals, you can go to patreon.com slash dataoverdogma and, uh, and kick a couple bucks our way. Leanne, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you on. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. Excellent. Bye, everybody. Take care. Bye.